the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is EdTech, episode number seven, recorded Wednesday, August 1st, 2012. Ubiquitous Platform Division. This is EdTech, the education-focused AV show from AV Nation. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host. Uh, with us, as always, is our roundtable. First up is Greg Brown. He is from the University of California, Los Angeles, better known as UCLA. Good afternoon, sir. Or morning. Tim. It's morning oh. still where you are, isn't it? It is, yes. It's, yes, and it's still overcast outside. I'm not, I'm not sure I can handle this. I'm sorry. I didn't think they had overcast in Southern California, but that's... Uh, in, in the morning, we do. In the morning, you do. Well, okay. Uh, also with us is Matthew Silverman. He is from George Mason University. Hello, sir. How's it going, Tim? Very well. And last but not least, our compatriot, uh, who was not with us at Infocom, but is with us now, Mr. Scott Tyner. He is from Bates College in Maine. How are you, brother? I'm doing great. Good. Uh, this month, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. Um, somebody dug up a an advertisement for an antivirus cable, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, we're going to talk about um, AV failures and how to overcome them, hopefully, maybe. I don't know. Uh, and also, um, from CE Pro, six products that CI should stop selling and six that they're going to continue to sell. And a lot of them are the same. So, um, And we're also going to dig into some of the uh, tablet wars and, and how that's going to play out, especially with enter- enterprise and enterprise in, in the education market. Uh, but first, uh, this I told the guys, this feels like breaking news. Uh, the article is, is from April, but it's it's all of us are, are kind of gearing up uh, for our the start of our fall semesters. And a lot of us are, are getting ready to purchase a whole lot of lamps. So... Uh, from uh, from just lamps, there are fake bulbs out there, guys. There are fake lamps, um, according to just lamps. Um, most of them are Hitachi uh, counterfeit Hitachi lamps uh, being sold in 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 the European area, which kind of surprises me. Uh, Matt, take this and, and, and kind of walk us through. Is there a way to tell besides the price? Probably, you know, if it's if it's too good to be true. <laughs> Uh, it probably is kind of thing. But besides the price, is there a way to tell whether or not your lamp manufacturer or the guys you get your lamps from is reputable and if you're getting, you know, a piece of junk? Um, I mean, we're we're a uh, single uh, manufacturer shop for our projectors. And one of the things we do with that is we make sure we buy through people we know are authorized resellers. Um you know, th- this almost strikes me kind of like the toner wars of years, bef- you know, mm, before. Yeah. Um, and where it got to the point, I think most modern uh, bulbs are like this, but, you know, there's a chip on there. So when you plug it in, you know, it's legit. Um, I know there's a couple companies that push remanufactured lamps. Uh, I, we stay away from them. Um, I mean, for us, we really just look and make sure we are buying from someone and there's really only two places we buy our lamps from that we know both of them are authorized distributors so, so. You, you you but you don't go the step to buy it straight from the let's say uh, you know hitachi or epson you don't buy straight from them you buy it from a third party we we used to um when we were actually let's see when we were on sharp years ago we had got authorized as a sharp repair depot, and that allowed us to buy directly from them. Oh, wow. um, and actually, I know Epson has a similar program. We just haven't got through it. Um, so we did at some point buy directly from them. There was also a cost issue. You know, If anything, cutting out the middleman brings prices down. Uh, but at this point, we just make sure we work with people who, you know, who should be selling this stuff. And frankly... If we ended up with a bulb which blew up a projector and it turned out to be a bad bulb, I think Epson would be as pissed as we were. Yeah. So, uh, Scott, so uh, as, as Matt mentioned, um, you know, it's you you know when you plug in the lamp, but how would you find out before you plugged it in? Well, as this this article pointed out, you know these are these are pretty good fakes here, um, and I actually. I can't tell you how I how I know. I'm like Matt. We buy either directly from the manufacturer or uh, from our rep uh, that we know that these are real lamps. And and like Matt, we don't we don't do any of the remanufactured or, or lamps or anything like that. They're all original new lamps. Um, we just don't want to risk the danger or the inconvenience. Well, and 
the, the inconvenience I get and the danger, uh, besides the, the lamp, I guess, blowing, <laughs> what, what else danger is there? Well, that's that's what I mean. I mean, sometimes we've had, we've had a, you know, even with, you know, manufacturer's lamps, we've had them, you know, glass blowing up inside a projector. And, yeah, yeah it's not not a good thing in the middle of a class. No, no, not, t- not, <laughs> not typically. We try to avoid that. Yes. Uh, Greg, is there is there something that you guys do, or, or do you use, like Matt, one or two uh, resellers to, to get your lamps? Uh, we tend to buy them from, uh, from yeah, the, the big-name companies. I know the, the university has a big uh, agreement um, with uh, CDW, so they've actually been the source of our, a, lot of, a lot of our lamps. I'd like to think they're pretty reputable. But I think one of the things we have to keep in mind here, I, I actually have quite a history with Hitachi projectors. Um, I had two different models that we bought, um, you know, probably 30 or 40 of each. Um, of so so a little bit of a track history or track record with them and um, Hitachi makes a tremendous number of projectors for other people. Uh, in fact, the uh, the folks at Hitachi I dealt with uh, their their division they had the strangest name. It was the Ubiquitous Platform Division, and and they were basic. That's <laughs> basically what they called this arm of their. Uh, projector folks that made that you can buy Hitachi projector but the other thing going on and I and and my my purchasing folks were the ones who figured this out they are private labeled by the, these models were private labeled under no less than like six different brands wow. I mean Proxima in focus uh, there are a bunch of Christie's that are made by Hitachi a lot of stuff out there is made by Hitachi the 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 trouble I got in is that they were generally cheaper and I'm not going to toss anyone p- specific under the bus, but a lot of the uh, the clones were cheaper and less reliable. But because the specs, quote unquote, he says doing the little quote thing Very with close. his fingers, mm-hmm. because the uh, the specs were the same, that was what I was going to get from purchasing, okay. whether I liked it or not. All right. So let me ask a question because I don't. I'm not a manufacturer. I don't. I don't pretend to be one. Why is that? I mean, why were they less reliable if they were all being cranked out of the same factory? The our theory, they the guts are the same, the the insides are the same. Okay. The cases were in many cases different, and what some of us are thinking was that um, they're, they're wrapping it in their own outside, but they're not putting it through the same like QC and cooling type long-term testing that, say, a Hitachi would, would do for something that they're going to put their own name on it. Because we had, um, you know, the Hitachis, we had, I, I still have them in service, but some of these clones, um, you know, I had uh, 50% failure after like two and a half years. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, right right after right after the warranty right after died. Warranty. Yeah, and a lot of it was the optical block failing. You know, we're getting that um, that that tint to the color as uh-huh. the as the optical block block fails, and a lot of people were telling me that's a that's a typically a cooling issue. Fine. So you know, just be aware there are a lot of projectors out there made by by people other than the people on the outside, and if you have any uh, or the people on the label, uh, two easy ways of finding that out. Uh, the website Projector Central, which yes. is a really good reference on projectors, will often put that in there in in their information if they if they know that. The other way to find out, go online and get one of these free little software programs that lets you read the EDID information on a on a connector and plug that into your projector, read the EDID information, and a lot of times in the information about like firmware versions and stuff like that, you'll find out who actually made your projector. Wow, that's a really good trick. I never thought of that. Yeah, learned that one just recently. Very cool. All right. So we, uh, we have warned people about the fake lamps. Um, next one, we're going to kind of, this is a, when you, when you get to the, the, the website on, on you're going to have a bunch of links here, and I, I apologize, but this is a big story, and we're going to we're going to kind of go through it little by little. We'll kick it off with this: the fact that Seton Hall has gone and committed to 
the Microsoft Surface for their students. This is the the, the tablet they are they are passing out according to their uh, their president. He, he quoted in this article: "We want to give our, all of our students access to the technology they need to be successful learners and future leaders." I I, I am not a big Apple fanboy. I am not a big Microsoft fanboy. I have an Android phone, and I have an iPad. I have an iPad because friends are smarter than me and, and with more money than I have have different versions, and, and one of my buddies has both. He has, a, I think, a Samsung or a, or a, uh, I don't remember, actually, I don't, don't recall which Android tablet he has, but he also has an iPad. And he just, he simply prefers it. It runs faster. It runs, quote, unquote, better than, than his Android versions. So I don't really have a dog on this hunt. I'm just curious why they would go this route. And a couple of the articles we're going to go through says, says kind of the similar, you know, thing. Uh, Scott, is this, yeah. I mean, is Microsoft's enterprise and all of their, their support system, is this what's going to drive guys like Seton Hall to pull the trigger on the Surface rather than the iPad, which, let, let's be honest here, Apple hasn't been the greatest enterprise um, company in the world. Well, I, I think that that is part of it. I also have to think that Microsoft, you know, I don't think they're shaking in their boots, but they've seen some of these other numbers the rest of us have seen about the sales of Mac and Mac products versus the sales of Windows products. It wouldn't surprise me if they, you know, obviously Seton Hall has some, you know, really... In, incentivized deal to to do this, yeah. um, so I think that there's there is this piece about the enterprise. But you know, the iPads come a long way. We're imaging iPads over here at Bates now. Um, you know, we're using profiles on the network. So there's a lot of things that you can do with them now. One of the interesting things for me, not necessarily a technical standpoint, but more of an administration one, is that Seton Hall is going with this give them a device model as opposed to the bring your own device model you know the BYOD that you're reading about in all the other magazines you know everybody's going towards this bring your own device model um, which I've never quite you know wrapped my head around so I'm really interested in what what Seton Hall is doing here I think that the further we go along it doesn't matter which tablet you're using um, I think it's the model of, of how how they use it in classes and how the students use it—that's going to be really interesting. Matt, you're one of the guys I go to when I talk about you know enterprise and you know taking care of entire networks. Is 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 Scott right? Where bring your own device is giving way to supply your own supply the device because that way we can dictate the devices that are on the network. Is that smarter than you know? Hey, we're just going to be you know. Um, a free-for-all and, and kind of open to everybody? Like everything, I think it depends. Um, I, I definitely think this is the idea that they want to control the environment, uh, particularly if you get into the idea of wanting to provide a consistent experience. I, I, I just don't believe you can do that on an Apple platform right now. Uh, as someone who's tried to do both iPad and enterprise Apple management, unless you have you know a dedicated team who, frankly, is rolling their own software, <laughs> the tools Sorry. just don't don't exist, um, and yeah, or you know where if you're and my guess is I don't know a lot about Seton Hall, but my guess is they may have a very strong Windows architecture behind them, and they may be using a lot of these products anyway. This probably plugs in very well uh, to what exists on their campus. Uh, and it'll probably provide a very seamless experience for their students because you know if they're on Exchange servers for email, if they're you know if they've adopted Microsoft Office environments, if they've used things like SharePoint, all of these tools plug into an ecosystem. Uh, it's the one thing which, in my opinion, I think Apple kind of lacks. Uh, it's still it's still more of a platform rather than an ecosystem, um, but. With this, I, it reminds me a lot of when Wake Forest did its big laptop initiative. I, I think that was back in the late '90s. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first ones to put it out, and it, it, it seems like I was, you know, as I read a little bit more into this. I mean, they're giving them uh, surfaces. They have a tablet. Uh, they have an ultrabook program, and they've even got Nokia to give them a free phone for a year or something like that. So they're really, I think, trying to make 
kind of I think they're trying to really embrace the always connected student model. But they're doing it again, not as Scott said, with the bring your own device model. But you know what? We know you're going to be connected. However, we'd like you to be connected on our platform. Then that makes sense. And, and, and Greg, one of the other articles that we're talking about uh, is, is talking about the fact that the there's a rumored iPad, smaller version of that, and um, how these guys, from an enterprise standpoint, um, iPad, the, the Apple guys are making it, are making a play for enterprise in that aspect. So for campuses like UCLA and and, and guys that are uh, have multiple colleges and and and, and like George Mason, uh, Bates and, and Lewis and Clark are, are kind of a smaller um, footprint. But when you guys have something like this, is this something where it's from the top down, or is this more because you you have several different divisions and several different colleges, like a business college and college of medicine? Where that would be, you know, kind of siloed, like each individual division, we're going to make our own decision, and these guys over here might do Surface, and these guys over here might do, you know, the smaller iPad. I've I've explained how we have thirty four IT departments on campus, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Need, need I answer that well, question? Well, that, that's a, that's why the question. That, that's why I was asking the question. I mean, that, honestly, because you guys do have so many different silos. It's uh, it, it's a tough one. I know it's something the IT guys are trying to get their head around as far as the classrooms, you know, what we're going to support and how. But, you know, meantime, we're, we're actually fighting the battle right now to actually get Wi-Fi in some of the classrooms that don't have it, you know, because it's, it's this, well, that's not our responsibility. Or, or even worse, the, well, we could do that. It won't cost you too much. You know, everybody wants their pound of flesh to do something. Okay. So, did, you, did the IT guys say that wireless internet is not their for? Huh? No, no. It's 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 a matter of who's going who. If we want Wi-Fi in the classroom, who are we going to pay to to do that? The same guys who pay you to put in the systems. Nobody. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just, you know what? Uh, I'm just a hillbilly I, I, from central Illinois, from well, southern Illinois. So. Yeah, I, it's it's uh, what is it like? Cost center management, I think, is something <laughs> the so, something you 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 call it if you have like a doctorate and understand this stuff. But but yeah, everybody bills everybody else for something, and if you try and try and do something around here that isn't what everybody is already doing, the first question is, well, who's going to pay for it? <laughs> I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good so, night. so, so I don't know. I I know it's something we are sort of struggling with to to figure out. All right. You know, as far as the Seton Hall thing, I mean, I think that's great that they're doing that. I mean, giving these devices to all of their freshmen. I mean, we 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 read all the articles about you know reversing classrooms and doing these one of sort of things. I I think it's great at, to to see a university just, you know, diving into the deep end of the technology pool there and and just giving devices to all their freshmen, you know. It's like God bless them for having the 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 attachments to to go out on a on a limb like that and and do that big of a of an experiment essentially. You know, one of the other things I wonder about though is and again I don't know anything about Seton Hall, so if somebody's listening, I don't mean to insult them, but it reminds me a little bit of um, the the fifty year old CIO who came up with this idea. And you're gonna get a bunch of nineteen year olds who go, I don't want this thing. I got my iPad. And it <laughs> yeah. sits on their desk. Good point. So you know that's number one. I think a lot of times we don't you know, I'd like to consider myself young. I don't even get how people are using technology right now and giving them a device and saying, this is what you have to use. I'm not sure that it's going to fly too well. I think one reason to do that, and you know, Matt talked a little bit about the enterprise, but is what are your apps on that? Because I don't care what the device is. The reason the iPad is so successful is because of the apps. Yeah. And you know, whether they're um, proprietary apps that Seton Hall developed or they, they've identified some other ones, you know, and it's actually a question for the, um, for the, the the tablets, period, is what what's your app store look like? How many apps do you have? But I mean, I, and, I, and I think you're you're hitting it right on the head. And this is something I go back to the iPad. We got iPads from work. 
I guess, going on 18 months, two years ago when the iPad 2 launched. And we really tried. I mean, it, we, we got them to do business tasks, and we pretty much had a blank check to buy any app we wanted. You mm. know, if it looked like it would help us, you know, we were told, go ahead and bought it. I mean, we, we really didn't have any limit. I think easily, we you know, between four or five people in our group, we may have spent $1,000 on apps. And what we found as we were going through is out of four of us in, in just in my little area who were using it, um, we have only one heavy, super heavy adopter who's our Crestron programmer. And he actually found a whole bunch of apps which could tie in with some of the network testing he was doing and programming. And it was very useful for him. Uh, we have another one of our project managers who found that for him it was a pretty good tool for taking notes and there were a couple of apps. For the other two of us, including myself, I found other than taking it to conferences for email, it really wasn't much value to me as a business tool. And I think with, with all of these things, it comes down to what you can do. And it's something I think we know very well in the AV community. It's all about the user experience. And it, it's not just necessarily the devices, but it's how the devices fit into the ecosystem. Like I said, if they have a really heavy Microsoft environment – and it's as easy as pressing a button to get to your email, or it's easy as pressing a button to get to your collaboration software. That, I think, will sell them. Well, but, except that 19-year-olds yeah, well, don't use email. Yeah. That is true. They text message. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the 19, memories of the 19-year-old me have also been largely lost to the mists of antiquity. But um, Well, I, but, thought what, it was I thought it was due to the 18-year-old you. Yeah. <laughs> well, or the 21-year-old you. One thing I'm reasonably confident of, if I had been give a ta given a tablet uh, back in, in my freshman year, the price would have been right for me. Greg, Greg if you would have been a tablet, it would have been made of stone. <laughs> yeah, you were. It was called a notepad. Uh, oh, oh. So he, my last question about Seton Hall is this, and everybody will appreciate this. Did the people who came up come up with this program ask the AV people if these will work in a classroom? No. <laughs> no, no, right. No, there is no the discussion there. That one. Well, I, you guys raise up good points. I did a, a, a experiment on myself, I guess, the, this past semester, this spring. Uh, I'm in grad school. I purchased an iPad for several different reasons. One was to see if I could, as a 38-year-old, uh, take notes on it, read the books on it. And so I, I purchased the, 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 the iPad 3 or whatever it's called now, uh, the base model with no new Wi-Fi or anything else or the wireless or anything else like that. Um, and I purchased all of my textbooks for my spring semester on it. Two things. First of all, I saved two hundred and fifty dollars per doing doing that. I purchased. Oh, did you really? oh my gosh, it was ridiculous. So I saved half of the cost of it uh, because the 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 uh, the Kindle version, the version I, I purchased for uh, for the iPad, was considerably cheaper than purchasing the the actual Dead Tree version. Um, and again, late thirties guy, you know, trying to to wrap my brain around you know reading. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had had reading a textbook, and I don't enjoy reading textbooks. So this kind of leads us into, into one of our other articles talking about the adoption of digital textbooks and how this is going to happen. I have a six-year-old who's getting ready to enter first grade. I may be naive, but I, I can see a time when either her or her younger brother will enter into either middle school or Maybe college. It may take that long. Where there are no more dead tree, tech, you know, dead tree books. It is where something like Seton Hall, where they give you a Surface, or they give you an iPad, or they give you a Kindle, and they say, "Here are here is your textbook for the time that you're here, and it's already paid for because you're you know you're paying you know tuition." And then this is how you're going to get your books. Or am I just way far out here, and I just had a good experience this semester? You're a little bit way far. I'm going to just jump in here, Tim. You're a little way far because a lot of schools don't use books, period, anymore. Okay. Um, but I think that you're not, you're, not, you're not crazy. We know that textbooks um, have some value and some use. And I think that you know, it, when I was in school, high school, <clears throat> I had my 20-year reunion this year. That was a long – so it was a long time ago. Yeah, mine's you know, next you, month, but go ahead. <laughs> you, had, uh, you had books that were 10 years old yeah. because they're – Freaking expensive, mm -hmm. you know. The, the a, a book seventy five to a hundred dollars, 
and you can't buy them every year. So I think that if we'll, we'll be using iPads, but, we'll, but we won't be thinking of textbooks in the traditional manner of a textbook. I think that the I, this idea that I um, – uh, what did Apple put out? Where you make your own book? I author is that what it's called? Um, I no one's using it. Um, <laughs> well, no hey. one, no one's using it. <laughs> no one is using it now, and that's true because I think there has to be a a fundamental change in how we look at things. Yeah. But the idea that there are a bunch of resources out here on the web, um, some of them may be you know ten page books of some sort. Um, and it's all going to be on a tablet. I do agree with that, but I don't think the reason that that textbooks fail on tablets now is because you can't take a textbook and really just put it right on a tablet. It works for you and me, Tim, because that's how we grew up. But for today's generation and to make sense with everything that's always changing, it's not your traditional textbook that's on there. Okay, so let me ask you guys real real quick. There's a gentleman uh, who's on the Twit Network. His name is Brian Brushwood. Uh, He has a show on Revision 3 called Scam School. Uh, He did a project with, and I don't remember what, what authoring tool he did, uh, where he put out a book this year uh, called Scam School, and it was the most interactive textbook-like experience I've ever had because not only were there graphs and there were pictures, but he had integrated video into it. So is that what we're headed to, where it's all kind of everything multimedia? Well, let me jump in there for a sec, because like you, Tim, I'm actually also in a master's program right now. It's actually Woo-hoo. a completely online program. It's through Western Governors University. And all of our textbooks are ebooks. Okay. And I have some severely mixed feelings about this. And it actually goes back to something I brought up in our last area, but it's about the user experience. And maybe it's because of how I grew up or what I'm used to. The ones which are available as PDF or PDF like experiences, where someone's actually done a layout on the book and it resembles a book, I'm actually pretty okay with that. But we've had a lot of resources which are literally text on a web page. And I actually find those almost painful to read uh, because there's no layout. And maybe it's because I was a layout editor in a former life. But it's just the user experience absolutely sucks. Now, it's great being able to do searches on keywords and being able to get into it. But I think something you were talking about, the Scam School book, it's because it was someone thought about what is it like to use this, yeah. and I, I and I think that's the next evolution, is, you know, spend a couple of hundred or maybe a thousand dollars per book, and at least get someone to lay the damn thing out, <clears throat> rather than just taking uh, text straight from a manuscript, and I, I think. If you know, and this is where Scott, I think you're trying to go with that Apple tool. If people start using things like that to develop their publications, I actually do think this will really take off because you can update data quicker, you can do it in real time, and you may have an annual edition. I also think textbook manufacturers though will have to change some of their models and maybe move more to a subscription-based service than actually expecting people to buy books. That is genius. And and here's the thing. Okay, so let's put our our, – none of us are business guys. That makes them more money though, Matt, Mm -hmm. which they should jump all over. But they can't – none of these – the the movie publishers, the song publishers – well, songs may be getting close. None of them have figured out how I can make more money. And what Matt just described – it's an excellent way for them to make more money. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm the 60-year-old now CEO of a big publishing company selling my books for $175 a piece. You know, what? there's really not much interest in me doing um, that. But, but really, I mean, if you look at, you know, if you break up that 175 I mean, okay, yes, if you get rid of the physical book, you know, your paper makers, your binders and all of that get disrupted. But if you look at your cost per book, I mean, if you look at the stuff going on with Kindle, you know, or things like that, I'm not even talking, you know, textbooks at this point. It it still boggles my mind that people are willing to pay the same price for a Kindle book as they are for a paperback. So it doesn't cost as much to produce that Kindle Uh book, obviously. So if the market's willing to bear that, you know – I mean, if they cut, just cut, as Tim, you said, what, you saved $250 on your textbooks this yep, semester? Yeah, on, on one semester, yep. And you were ecstatic, and I'm guessing you probably dropped a couple hundred still on textbooks. 
Uh, yeah, about two hundred yeah. bucks. Yeah. So you know, and I you know, I've been in semesters like that. Hell, even in undergrad, I remember dropping five hundred dollars, yeah. you know, a semester on books. So you know, you cut the price in half for the consumer, they'll take just about anything <laughs> if they can still get to the content. Yeah. And if you make the user experience just a little bit better. I'm sure, not that you want to, but you would have been happy and rather than saving 50%, if you say, you know, say 40% but got a better user experience out of it. Yeah, probably. You know, if, if it was actual, you know, somebody thought about it and, and, and integrated some things. One of the classes I took was media law. Had you had, you know, examples of the case studies that we were talking about um, mm -hmm. in, in the various, you know, um, you know cases and, and, you know, the articles and stuff. So, yeah, that makes sense. Fun. So the so the last piece I'll say about that is I, I think that everybody's exactly right that we need to change the whole paradigm of it and I think the example that relates to that is that here at Bates we did digital signage mm -hmm. and people were taking posters that they made making them PDFs and putting them on the digital sign <laughs> it's like that doesn't <laughs> right? it's a completely different media yeah. and I think it's that same concept you can't take a book and put it on the iPad without somehow changing it and making it richer. Yeah. But we used a different typeface. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this, and the, the, this, I'll compare two different books. I won't, I won't give the name of the book or the author. One was, let's say it was optimized for the Kindle app on my, on my iPad. I could change the font. I could change the color. I could change everything about this thing. It was incredibly searchable. It was a wonderful experience. In fact, not only did it have a, a searchable function of... The book itself, it integrated with um, with Google and Wiki. So when I typed in, I was searching for a particular um, subject or a particular case or you know, whatever. Um, it took it showed me what was in the book, but also on the side here, it had all these other articles uh, on both Google and Wiki. Compare that to this other book where I couldn't change the font, I couldn't change the the typeface, I couldn't change anything else about it. And it was a much less fulfilling experience, let's just say. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, you are listening to EdTech, the education-focused AV show from AV Nation. Uh, with us is Greg Brown, Matt Silverman, and Scott Tyner. I am Tim Albright. Uh, one thing that uh, we kind of talked about on AV uh, Week last week is the great, uh, not great, but the, but the newest OS from Apple, which gives the um, the desktop the ability to do AirPlay, something that that is similar to that, and is kind of you know is going to give AirPlay and the whole idea of wirelessly sending your video signal to other displays is something from Nvidia. Uh, this is something I am not familiar with. I am not a big you know graphics uh, computer guy, so we're going to let Matt take this one on. But Matt, if I understand this correctly. This NVIDIA chip does something similar and is a competitor to the AirPlay idea behind Apple. Yeah. Um, NVIDIA announced, it was, I guess, what, about a week, week and a half ago, that they were going to be supporting a new standard, which is being developed, called Miracast. Uh, it is um, something which is actually being endorsed by the Wi-Fi Alliance, that's the marketing alliance for all things uh, wireless network, uh, kind of like AV New for AVB, but on okay. the Wi-Fi side. And um, this is going to be their competitor for AirPlay and also for the Intel Witty, which you probably never heard of and never will use, but <laughs> it exists. Um, and it, it's something... Sorry, sorry, did you say Witty? W-I-D-I. Uh, and is that a product? That, that, that's an Intel proprietary thing, which... Probably, if you have an Intel chipset inside your laptop today, it supports. Okay. However, Intel spent like all of a month marketing it and then forgot they had the technology, oh, in my opinion. So it's, it's basically another wireless display over, uh, over wireless networks. Okay. Uh, very similar to AirPlay, you know, just Intel's flavor. Um, so Miracast, though, is one which is being supported uh, by NVIDIA, and it's also, and I just did a quick follow-up, uh, Texas Instruments, Qualcomm, and Marvel have also, submitted, uh, have also committed to supporting it on their chips as well. It's probably, 
I, I don't even know how far from market, you know, six, nine months, you know, it, it'll, it'll hit us before we're, we know. But what, what really got me on this one is the fact that NVIDIA got behind it on their Tegra platform. And Tegra is really the core technology inside most Android tablets. So all of a sudden you now have, uh, you know, AirPlay from Apple. You have uh, Smart Glass from Microsoft on their Surface platform and now you have miracast uh coming from uh from nvidia and a whole bunch of other people which will probably be what flushes out on android and we end up with a world of confusion in trying to do wireless display but what's new for us in the av side of the world <laughs> well it is except for the, the, the whole wireless part um yeah. you've got let me see this so You've got it on Android devices, mm-hmm. the ability or the possibility that it could be inside Microsoft devices. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm sure as the uh, Windows 8 tablet flushes out, I mean, while the Surface is Microsoft's Microsoft, uh, Windows 8 tablet, uh, they're opening it up to other developers. I think HP, Lenovo, and a couple others will have products at launch. And they may use NVIDIA's uh, Tegra platform inside because it's a really good platform for graphics. So all of a sudden, we will have you know a whole bunch of these, and these are really software network layer-based standards floating out there, as well as some of the other hardware standards floating out there, which just means the mess of how do you do wireless display will get much worse before it gets better. Okay, so... It, from what I see, and I, I could be not understanding this at all, mm-hmm. th- this may might come down to as simple as having just instead of one device, which you know, for the AirPlay world that's that's having an Apple TV hooked to your display, but maybe having two devices, which is still not a horrible thing, is it? Or, or am I simpl- simplifying it too much? It it could it could go in that direction. I I think over time we will have another uh, VHS Betamax oh. uh, shoot off. I mean, in some respects, I think with mirror, uh, with Nvidia getting behind this, it, it's kind of like when Sony used to walk into the room before you know they became the new Otter Sony. Uh, <laughs> but but back when Sony was you know the the player, and I mean Nvidia. I don't know the exact percentage, but I'm going to guess is probably upwards of 50 percent, if not more, of the graphics market. So it's it's a pretty big deal when when they jump in on something like this. Okay, I'm excited about it because I I've been excited about about AirPlay for a while, and I've used it. Um, I've used it from again. I have a, an iPad, and I have done everything from showing video on a, a flat panel to showing you know basically um, mirroring. Uh, for lack of a better term, my iPad onto a, a display and showing exactly what was on my screen. So the idea that you could do this in a Microsoft world or a PC-based world is exciting to me, or even an Android-based world. Um, you know, we were talking actually before the show about pulling cable. This eliminates a lot of that. <laughs> I mean, it really does, doesn't it? Just a bit. Yeah. I, that, and that, that to me, that, I guess that's the most exciting thing. Actually, we're, we're taking a case study this summer um, once I get all of my equipment in. Uh, in one of our classrooms and putting in an Apple TV uh, in the in you know doing a, mounting it right above the, the projector and uh, one of our our faculty who's a, a heavy heavy tech user uh, is going to do a case study for us and see what the feasibility of this is uh, of actually using it on a daily daily basis uh, to teach the class so I, I, I'm, I'm excited about anything like this that's wireless and the fact that it's Nvidia which is you know they think pretty cool graphic cards so I, I like it I don't know. I think that um, you know one of the biggest potentials of this is is the idea of uh, ten or fifteen students in a class with tablets. You know, let's talk about Seton Hall, who can then you know just at the you know push of a button or fact member pointing at them display what they're working on. Yeah, that's that you know, and it gets to this point. We've always had this issue where there's a podium in the front of the room and there's desks facing a screen, and now you know all of a sudden if there's not wires that are an issue. You know, now we've got some real flexibility in a classroom. Our concerns are always, you know, that these things are going through a wireless network. And so, you know, we know, we know that we need to be really good friends with the IT people. <laughs> yeah. And what, what is, you know, talking about what Matt talked about earlier, what is the user experience? 
how easy is it to get connected wirelessly, you know, through this system? Yeah. And yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens when yeah we we get a bunch of these in a classroom and we've got a bunch of devices and they all want to be on the network and somebody also wants to use the one of them to control the AV system and you know it'll be interesting to see what happens and where exactly this goes I think there are some some unanswered questions here exactly how this will work out but I I agree it's exciting. I agree with Matt that the biggest the, – the, normally you tell me wireless and I just stop listening. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I'm not using yeah. wireless anything anywhere. Now, when they talk about an open standard and they talk about NVIDIA being involved with video, like Matt, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll at least listen to you. I, I would love to stop listening whenever they, start, they talk about wireless. Unfortunately, it's most of the people above me in the chain of command. Saying, why can't we do this? Why can't we do this? Why can't this be wireless? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've I've purchased more than one wireless transmitter receivers for VGA and HDMI and mixed results. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and bash anybody, but I've had mixed results at best. Um, Everything from a $50 piece on up to a $1,000 piece. Uh, And again, mixed results at best from, from both ends of the spectrum. Uh, so something like this that has the backing of, let's face it, two of the biggest arms of of the PC world and i.e. the IT world, I'm excited about because I don't think that they'll they're going to do it unless it works. At least more, you know, a little bit more than just you know the stupid ballum that I've gotten in my back room. Well, I think one of the big things, and I couldn't actually find any details on the white paper that they have on this, but if it is enterprise friendly which none of the current standards really are you know it will go it'll go over subnets you'll have some sort of authentication protocol that will be the killer one i mean at this point people will adopt in their home i mean they're happy to have you know the apple tv plus the ipad because there's no complexity yeah but if this one comes to the table and brings some enterprise functionality i think it could be huge very cool Alrighty, uh, a couple of things, guys, before we let you go. First of all, uh, one thing we'll, we'll talk about here real quick. And um, at the All Things D conference, which if, if you're not familiar with that, it's the Wall Street Journal's conference about all things digital, uh, which is the, the D part. Um, the uh, Stanford University president and also uh, Sam, Salman Khan, the guy who started Khan Academy, was talking about how this digital revolution and how all this, this Internet-based stuff that we've been, kind of been talking about today is going to help lower the cost of, of higher education. And we'll go around here real quick because some of us are, are familiar and, and can deal with, you know, um, pedagogy, which is a really big word that I learned from, from Scott. Uh, and um, not only that, but how we as AV professionals can help facilitate this. You know, how we can, whether that's a, a, a distance learning classroom or it's stuff like, you know, making sure that the uh, the surfaces or the iPads can all kind of come together on one big on, on one big um, screen. Uh, Scott, is, is are, are we able or, or are we even in this mix when it comes to you know the whole digital thing and, and getting every all everything together to help this next generation coming up behind us learn in a digital era? I I certainly hope that we are the people who do that. It's actually one of my real strong areas of of interest uh, when you think about online education, whether it be um, from kindergarten up through, you know, post-grad school. As I think I've mentioned on the show before, I'm I'm on the local school board here in my town, and so we're always dealing with budget issues, and there are some amazing ways that you can get around that using online education. At the same time, you know, in our local paper, we just read the other day about how the Maine Attorney General is filing suit against some of these online schools um, because they're actually not much cheaper than going to, you know, to a, a local school with brick and mortar, um, and they've got ridiculous dropout rates yeah. for, you know, for for college. You know, you're talking, you know, sixty, seventy percent dropout rates after they've gotten all your money. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I think that there's there's no – so there, what is that balance between the support structure that brick and mortar gives you um, along with you know being able to learn at your own pace online to really focus on what you want, want to do? Um, I, but I, but you know, to get back to your question, I think that you know, we are the people who can um, 
can get us get us there both with the whether it's the streaming content whether it's you know producing videos in a classrooms or doing the virtual classrooms or recording things um, I think it's a really exciting opportunities for the future even in a small place like Bates who I can tell you in at least the next 10 years if if ever is is not going to do online learning um, but we're going to have to do something yeah. something's going to have to change Matt, you you do online learning. You said you've, you're part of a of a master's program that that's yeah. your your deal. Uh, I did a little bit of that in in my early um, uh, early no, in early stages of, of masters. Um, what is your experience, and, and where do you see us as AV guys fitting into this mix? Well, it's a really interesting experience that I'm going through right now because there is no AV or no traditional AV in the program I'm in. Uh, it is a completely online uh, university. It's uh, it's a nonprofit versus a lot of the ones which are for profit. It's also regionally accredited, which for those familiar with education, being regionally accredited is actually a much bigger deal than being nationally accredited. Um, and it also has a very interesting content model. There's no regular classes. It's um, almost an all you can eat program. Hmm. I pay tuition for six months. I can complete as much as I can. I do have a minimum uh, requirement that I do need to complete in that period uh, so I can accelerate my program. I mean, my program's called a two-year program. I'm actually hoping to do it in nine to 12 months. Wow. And they use a competency model where I, you know, I submit assignments to prove competence rather than your traditional you know, 15 weeks of lecture plus a couple of papers or uh, you know, e exams. And I'll tell you, I'm just about through with my first course, and there is, you know, I've actually done traditional graduate work as well. This is as academically rigorous, if not harder, than what I've done before. Uh, and it, it's an interesting model. It's, it, it actually reminds me in a lot of ways it's of the Khan Academy, which is mentioned in that uh, story, as being a very self-serve, self-driven model. Now, I will say um, it's not necessarily for everyone. Uh, their graduation rates for their undergrad, I actually pulled this up as we were talking, are pretty abysmal. It, I'm not 100% sure if I'm reading this table correctly, um, but as I'm reading their table, it's saying something like on the undergraduate side, they have something like a 16 or 17% graduation rate. Wow. Now again, I may be reading this table wrong, but so I don't I don't want to you know sound you know, like I'm trying to slander the program because I actually think it's a great program for me. But I'm in a place where self-guided learning is more focused towards my learning style. Yeah. Um, however, like I said, for someone who actually works in higher education providing audiovisual technology, there is no role for what I do in this model of education. Um, they do use a lot of uh, unified collab um, communication tools. Uh, that, you know, there are some webinars and there are live chats, but pretty much everything is done in what I'll say a pure IT setting. So it, it, it's a very disruptive model. Um, I don't think this is for everyone. I think as I'm reading their graduation rates, it's definitely not for everyone. Yeah. But I think this is kind of a lot of the conversations on the other articles we have in, in our queue about, you know, I guess, what was it, the Chronicle article about the coming tsunami, uh, which I'm, I don't know if everyone's read, but it's, it's I think we're, up, we're, we're coming up on a massive disruption yeah. in higher education. And I think Scott's right. For those of us who are still brick and mortar, you know, we will be enabling delivering content in, in multi-modes. But I think something's going to be changing, like our industry is changing over the next 10 years or so. Greg, you guys, we've mentioned it already, you guys have a bunch of silos. How does that affect you um, and your college when you do have guys who are like, uh, who are their own little fiefdoms? Um, is that something that's going to have to change from a culturally standpoint? Or you guys are just going to continue on your silos and some of those colleges are going to you know, uh, be ahead of others? I think that's the $64,000 question. I don't you have know, it, it is, it, it, uh, it's a lot of people running off in different directions, doing different things. It hasn't really 
impacted me directly as far as the classroom goes. Um, in, in a sense, I almost wish it would. I find this stuff a, um, very fascinating and, and exciting. But, um, you know, everybody, like the thing you pick up from reading these articles, you know, it's, it's a lot of people trying a lot of different things, charging off in different directions, and nobody really seems to have the, to have the answer yet. Yeah. You know, it's an exciting time. I, and I, is, I agree is. with a lot of what Matt said. You know, st stuff is definitely changing down the road. I don't think it's really clear to anybody yet exactly how things are changing. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, one of the articles that we're, I want to get to before we, we kind of wrap up here is, uh, is from Inside Higher Ed. And the, the art, name of the article is this, Disturbing Frequency of Presentation AV Failures. Um, all of us are getting ready for the fall semester. Our fall semester starts on the August 20th, so uh, not to, yeah, three weeks from Monday. Um, I want to go around the horn, and you guys give me your one or two or, or ten things, if you want, things that you do during the summer to make sure or at least to mitigate the number of failures that you have come the first week of class. Uh, Scott, we'll start with you. What are the one or two things that you guys do during the summer to kind of, you know, make sure that there aren't a thousand calls the first day of uh, the first Monday of classes? Uh, there's a, a couple of things we do. One thing we do is we've actually hired a temp employee for the summer um, whose job is to go into every single classroom and use every piece of technology in that room and test everything out from top to bottom. Um, so that between August 1st and the start of classes, every single classroom and presentation space will have been touched in the past month. Wow. Um, you know, the other big thing that we, we do, I, you know, I've talked about this at a couple of conferences, um, and I think it's something that people do more often now is this, this help button on a touch panel that gets people to a room immediately. Um, you know, I, I don't you know, want to say it's always the user's fault. 50% 50, 50 of the time, it's the user's fault. And, but that doesn't matter, right, because there's still a problem. So you get there quickly. I think, you, I think you do preventative maintenance, and then you are ready and prepared to get there quickly. If somebody's sitting in front of a room and you know, they have to wait five minutes and then they're, then they're going because they've got to turn the computer on, that's okay. They're going to be cool with that. That's my experience, and I, I know that certainly to, to George Mason and, and to UCLA, there's completely different scales. What, uh, real, real quickly, do you use some sort of asset management software? Like RoomView or Global Viewer or the AMX version. Yeah, we use uh, we use RoomView, and so that on our touch panel there's a help button, and they press that help button, and within a, a minute, everybody in my department has got a text message on their uh, iPhone telling them the room that they had better start moving to. Wow. Okay. Uh, UCLA. What do you guys do, at least in the, in the area that that you're overseeing, Mr. Brown? Uh, you know, things don't quiet down that much. Really? Um, okay. You know, we, we, well, we have, we only have 10,000 students here over the summer instead of oh, our normal, geez. like, 35,000 or something like that. So we, you know, the, the classes, rather than being booked from, you know, 8 a.m. till 10 p.m., you'll, you'll have an hour or two open during the day. And we'll, we will usually, it's, it's not something I directly oversee, but, um, uh, we, we, um, our audiovisual folks will generally try and during the summer get out and check the rooms at some point. But, you know, generally we find out pretty quick if there's something wrong. You know, we have uh, uh, Xtron's Global Viewer rolled out to all of the rooms currently. And uh, we have a, a ring down phone in all the rooms if they just pick up the phone and it rings at the, the help desk. Oh, wow. Kind of like a, the bat phone. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it, it's it's sort of just an ongoing sort of thing. It's just a little quieter here during the summer. I understand. Uh, Mr. Silverman, what do you guys do at George Mason? A um, lot of the same. Like Scott, we actually uh, check every classroom, any piece of user functionality. There will be someone who goes in. And we actually do this off a checklist. Uh, we have phones in all of our rooms, so anyone has a problem, we run our own help desk. They can call us on any of our three campuses, and you know we'll always have someone there to assist them. We also roll out. Damn it! Quite sure how far along we've gotten with this, but we've been starting to develop some faculty self-service training hmm. uh, that we're trying to push out. Uh, we did some videos years past. It just was took way too much time to get the production quality we wanted. So we're focusing more on like one-sheet handouts for basic functionality. But I'll agree with something Scott said at this point. Um, I would easily say 
75% of all calls we get now are non-technology related in the sense that it wasn't a technology failure. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not something we support. It's just that we've seen as we've really worked on our technology, this movement past, oh my God, you know, the switcher died or the router died. And it's now more, okay, let me talk you through how the system works, how we can do what you need to do. So, right. And well, yeah. here, you know, here's a point that they make in this article um, is that he says, oh, we have no metrics. Well, at Bates, we actually do have metrics. And, and we, we remind people of this, that Last academic year, there were 10,000 uses of AV technology on campus. Wow. We, we, we've got the metrics recorded. There were 170 problem calls, and about 40 of those were actually – there was actually something technologically, techno, technologically wrong in the room. Scott, you did a webinar wow. on that that was just – I've done it. I've done it. Do you I've have done that someplace? Yeah. What's the, I've done okay. the presentation a couple times. It's, What's it, the math on that though? Like what percentage? Oh, it's like it's it's beyond a ninety nine percent success rate. Wow, good yeah. for you. And it's helpful because you know you've had those days where you get like eight calls and you go home and you know you pull out the six pack and say <laughs> what am I doing wrong? And you know you've got to realize you got six calls. There were three hundred uses of technology that day. Yeah, yeah. If if the help desk got six calls in a day, they'd be jumping for joy. You know. So it really helps with perspective, and um, it, it helps with our administration as well when we talk to them about, you know, yeah, somebody had a problem the other day, but 300 people did not. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's, it's something that everyone in, in, in this podcast has pushed as part of the industry, but the industry needs to push a little bit more, which is we have to evolve the idea of the AV professional from a cart pusher to a support professional. Yes. And – Part of what we have to bring to the table, as Scott has said many times, is the metrics. Yeah, so. I, I'm actually I'm going to write to this guy that wrote <laughs> that wrote this article because I no I, I really he needs some interesting feedback because you know the funny thing is here you know he's writing about his MacBook Air couldn't he couldn't get the signal to the projector right but you put in a PC and he got the signal fine so seems to me the technology in that room was working. <laughs> wow. I'm going to write yeah. to Mr. Mr. Joshua Kim, I think. Yeah. There, there are some very interesting lines in here. You know, I, I like this. I am not sure what the solution is for what I see as a growing epic, epidemic of AV presentation failures. Well, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's the, the end user. You know, just, we just need to make sure that there are, no, there are no end users. If there are no end users, then we don't have any problems. Well, you know, and also he's talking. Well, yeah, there, there you go, there you go. I, I, the, I, the, the, the ultimate solution, the final solution, the final solution. There you go. Jeez. But I, the one thing I gotta ask with all of this, and maybe this is just the way I was taught to present, but I've always prepared for a scenario where nothing works, and I've actually had that happen to me, you know, in real life. I mean, I once had Microsoft Office on my computer decide to eat itself. 30 seconds before I started a presentation. Wow. And there was no option. I, like, I couldn't get the stuff off the computer. There wasn't another computer available. So I had to do two hours of me talking. And that can be an interesting experience depending on who you talk to. But it, it was something at least I was taught when I was going through public speaking and some of the other presentation training I've gone through is you always have to be prepared for that. And maybe there's something into the fact that if the only way you can teach is with your PowerPoint, I, there may be a larger issue going on. I don't know. I'm not going to get judgmental of the faculty, but I'll, I'll just throw that one <laughs> out there. Say, Please don't, because uh, most of our, our faculty, that, that is how they are. It's it's one of those, you know, I, I don't understand why I can't I can't I can't do my my lesson plan because, you know, there's no projector. You you can't you still can't share the information. No. Because the information is not in my head. It's on the PowerPoints. Sorry. That was my own yeah. editorializing. Yeah. All right. And, you know, well, to be the devil advocate to that, to some of the presentations I've done, though, where you charts and graphs and yes. numbers, I, I couldn't do the presentation without them. I mean, that's, that is the presentation. Mm-hmm. And right. so, you know, and actually I use that when I talk to faculty, I use that to say, no, listen, actually, I have been where you are right now. So let's take five minutes, relax. And come up with a solution. If if Scott, you know, Scott did a great webinar on this, and Scott, if there's a link to that somewhere, we should uh, we should put that up in the links because I uh, I thought that was a really 
dynamite uh, little presentation you did on what you guys do up there and what the numbers showed. Yeah. Yeah, it's on Infocom's site. Maybe we can we can dig it up and it's I'll an get info- it. Okay, that's good. That's yeah. good. I, I highly recommend it. And, you know, anybody out there in higher ed, if you're not doing this, you know, hey, here's here's a great big opportunity for you that, you know, really in the long run only is only going to make you look better. Yes. You know, you have a, a greater handle on where your failures are coming from. You know, you're going to be able to address all of these questions when they come up. And it, it gives you a target. It gives you things to work on. You know, mm-hmm. where, where are your systems failing? I mean, I think that's one of the questions we always need to keep asking ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Right. All right, uh, guys, before we wrap this up, uh, Greg, you had a, a really good experience at a manufacturer's training that you wanted to share about. Oh, I just wanted to uh, to give a brief shout out to uh, Kramer. I spent uh, two days at a Kramer training class last week. It was uh, it was a, a a regular full day with a couple of different tracks, and then there was sort of a semi secret second day that they invited some of the the more engineering types to and. Um, tremendous amount of hugely wonderful and useful information on uh, EDID and HDCP. There's a bunch of stuff that, 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 that I learned that I didn't know. I mean, not, not that I'm any sort of wizard in this, um, but um, a tremendous amount of really useful information. Um, also, some really good wireless. Uh, Pete Putman did uh, a bunch of stuff the first day. And uh, he's got some great information on all the various wireless video standards out there competing and how they work and stuff like that. And so uh, I I'd recommend, you know, go to the Kramer website and uh, they have a they have a little uh part where they talk about their education and where their classes are going to and if anything's coming up in your neighborhood I would I would recommend it and if they're not coming into your neighborhood and you can get a bunch of people together like you know 10 20 tech folks who want to learn about any of this stuff they will come to you so I I just you know I I have virtually no Kramer equipment and I almost feel bad about that but I think they are a company that is really going out of their way to be magnanimous in the area of training and bringing people bringing training to people um, in a in a way that a lot of people aren't very cool. Uh, and Mr. Tiny, you want to talk about uh, the Technology Managers Council, something that all four of us are, uh, are a part of? Yeah, so the Technology Managers Council, um, had, had, the planning committee did a um, call yesterday with a new council of Infocom called the Technical Service Providers Council. And this is a council of people who provide service mainly rather than equipment. And so it's a really interesting way. So many of us have talked of uh, have talked about doing our own installs and the like. And we all know that we run into times where we get over our heads. And so these these people are people that will um, give you installers, you know, to to come in and help you do installs without asking to take the whole project. There are people who will come and do designs for you without asking to take the whole project and work for an architect. It's a really interesting council. I think that they've got a huge future in Infocom and in the industry. Um, and so here's my pitch. If, if you're on the Technology Managers Council, there's going to be an email coming out in the next day or so about a, a conference call with some of these guys. Make sure you attend that. If you're not on the Technology Managers Council, get on it um, because we're going to do this conference call. And I think that this is really exciting and, it, and it's um, a big part of the future of um, the AV industry. Yeah, if, if you're in higher ed and you do any of your own install work or you want to do any of your own install work, you need to know these people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, two of the guys that we've had on quite a bit, one is a, a buddy of mine here in St. Louis uh, named Adrian Boyd. He's on this council and, and actually introduced me to some other guys. So it, it actually yep. is really good, uh, really good guys to know. So. All right, uh, Mr. Silverman, would you like to, to pimp anything or promote anything that you're doing? <laughs> yeah. Your, uh, your, your blog. Hang on, your blog. What's your blog? My blog is uh, Next Edge Tech. Unfortunately, it hasn't been updated in a while, uh, but I, I do plan to get back to it after the summer's over. Uh, I do want to mention, though, the uh, CCUMC uh, conference coming up because it's it's a great conference. Uh, 
for folks who do what we do. Um, and it's actually the number of workshops this year which have an AV focus is like half the conference, which was is up at least 25% from last year. Um, I'm actually going to be doing uh, two presentations there. One is a tech manager's modern day survival guide, as well as another one on enterprise AV, kind of talking about some of the points we hit on earlier. Um, it's a really good show, and if you know you like Las Vegas, it's back in Las Vegas again this year. If you don't like Las Vegas, well, is it, what was it at the Tropicana? Uh, I think it's at the Tropicana, and it's October third uh, through the seventh. One of the interesting things, which is not something I, I'm actually doing, but I'm planning on attending, is SynogCon is doing a uh, full-day uh, pre-conference workshop on audio in the classroom uh, on October 3rd. And it's only $100 add-on to the conference, and I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, I was so, SynodCon, if you have never been to one, you should go because they're – talk about having your mind blown. It will uh, it will fill your head full of all sorts of really good information. So, All right, um, guys, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, Greg Brown from UCLA, who's uh, who's still on his first cup of coffee. Thank you so much, sir. I actually don't drink coffee anymore, but oh. the sun is out, so I'm 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 sitting here in the morning sunlight, so I'm feeling okay. much better. Good, I, I I'm I'm glad to hear that. It's still 110 here in St. Louis. So, uh, Matt Silverman from George Mason University, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. And last but not least, our uh, our illustrious leader at the Technology Managers Council, Mr. Scott Tyner from Bates College, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Tim. This was fun. Uh, my name is Tim Albright. Uh, if you'd like, please go by the website. Check out this show and others as well. The, the uh, website is ravepubs.com forward slash aviation. Ravepubs.com forward slash aviation. Thanks so much for listening to EdTech.